Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. And welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, one of your co-hosts, Jessica. And as always, I am joined by my better pod half, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. This week, we are doing another patron select episode. And this is going to be Mindy's episode. But I do need to do a quick disclaimer before we jump in and get started. Due to the nature and content of this week's episode, the term Indian will be used, but only in direct correlation with a quote or proper name. Three Speaks Girls does not condone the using of words, terms, labels that oppress or hurt members of our community and beyond. We love you all and we want you to feel safe. So just wanted to put that out there. This week's episode is a patron select, like I said, and it was picked by Mindy. Mindy, thank you so much for supporting the show and allowing us to talk about a very sensitive subject. In my correspondence with Mindy, this seemed very personal and very, she was very passionate about wanting to talk about this particular injustice in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Mindy, so much. And we appreciate you supporting the show. If you would like an episode like Mindy is getting today, you can go to the show notes below and head over to patreon.com backslash three spoot girls, where you can look at all the different tiers. $10 and up patrons get to select their own have an episode that they get to pick the topic and that we discuss. And we have a couple higher tiers. We have a $25 a month and a $50 a month patron. You can check those out, but you can be a patron for a little as a dollar. Dollar dollar members get a bonus episode each month. $2 and up patrons get slaughters, which is Jessica Slaughter's movie reviews and plot lines. If we get to a hundred, five dollar nut patrons are gonna get new video content from Tara. Yay! The topic that Mindy picked for me to talk about today is the Carlisle Indian School. The topic can be triggering. It does have a lot to do with Indigenous Americans. So if this is something that's triggering for you, we completely understand. And we want first and foremost for your mental safety. So if you need to skip, we completely understand and love you and send you a big hug. But if not, continue listening. So let's get down to business to defeat the white people who are assholes. True. That is what you're going to walk away feeling with today. So the actual name of the school that was started was called the United States Indian Industrial School. It is located or was, it kind of still is, it's still there. It's not active, but it's still there. was located in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and it is commonly known as the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. It was the flagship for boarding schools for indigenous children. And it was founded in 1879 by General Richard Henry Pratt. And it was the first federally funded off-reservation boarding school for Native children. The goal of the school was to immerse Native students into mainstream Euro-American culture. And you might be like, how did that happen? Like, why is this a topic of the federal government? Well, for that, you have to go back to 1819 
to the Civilization Act. And the Civilization Act was the act that was passed by the United States government on March 3rd, 1819. And I apologize right now. Everyone knows that I have a little bit of a dyslexic moment when it comes to numbers. And if I say 1918 or 1930, I mean 18s. We are in the 18s. And I will clarify when I mean 19s. I apologize up front. <laughs> and I apologize to Tara, who does the editing, because I do this all the time to her. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm used to it. It's fine. <laughs> like I said, it was the act was passed by the United States Congress on March 3rd, 1819. The act encouraged activities of benevolent society in providing education for Native Americans and authorized an annuity to stimulate the civilization process. Thomas L. McKinley lobbied the Congress in support of legislation. The Civilization Fund Act led to the formation of numerous Native American boarding schools towards the end of the 19th century, which I get in in like a way like at this point when I was doing my research, I was like, okay, so they're wanting to provide them with higher education. That doesn't seem like a bad thing. And I knew what was coming. I was hopeful that the beginning was. And where it kind of went downhill was the Indian Removal Act of 1830. And it was signed into law by President Andrew Jackson on May 28, 1830. And it forced Native American tribes to move from the southern United States to locations in the Midwest, which was actually like Oklahoma, very specifically, because it was territory and not a state. And I apologize. We know I have problems with pronouncing things correctly. So it's the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muskegee Creek, Simoline and the Cherokee. Mm -hmm. And this was actually what they would call the Trail of Tears. You probably learned in history class, and it probably had a Native woman holding a baby, like drawn into your history book, like flashing back. And it was very much downplayed. And this was a part of my life because my grandfather is from like the Pawnee County, Pahuska area of Oklahoma, which is where some of these native tribes ended up. Well, actually, Osage, I think. I don't know. And I feel really bad for not knowing. And maybe Mary can educate me a little bit more on their history and how they came to that spot. But I actually had the the story is that they would cry because they were being forced from their lands and their tears would form like rosebuds in the dirt. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere in my storage... Or my uncle has it. I'm not sure. I have like a little statue of the like hard red clay from Oklahoma that was shaped like rosebuds. And so that was in my house like growing up because I've mentioned that I have Native American background and I have family who married into it. In fact, when we did our the Osage murders during my research on Ancestry.com, I found the main character of the book that I was using for that research and the story that we were using. I found a census that had my family member on it. Right. Mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah, that was like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is too, too small worldy. Mm-hmm. The world is so small. Right. But anyway, I grew up knowing a lot about that. And I remember learning in school that the government recorded only 400 deaths, but talking with my family, knowing that it was upwards of could be like 40,000, it was not good. Mm-mm. And that's also confirmed by like anthropologists say it was probably about 4,000, but we all know that, you know, it was probably higher. Yeah. And I just want to say something like in this, I learned this fact and I thought this was amazing. To sh- I wanted to share because I did not know this and I want to spread as much good information in the world as out there. Prior to this act, the Cherokee Nation was actually its own sovereign nation. 
They had their own government. They had their own constitution, like their own laws. They had one of the first bilingual printing presses in America. Wow. Most of their citizens could speak both English and their native language. And they could read in those too, which if you, and I, when I was watching this documentary, which will be on the sources page, you will know, <laughs> like they were talking about it. And most white Americans at that time, a lot of them couldn't even read in English mm-hmm. slash write slash speak it properly. And still today, I don't even know if I'm speaking proper English, <laughs> but it, that just like that blew my mind. And I felt like in saying this, I should share this because I think like the more, you know, the better. Mm-hmm. So we talked about like the history, which brings us to this moment of wanting to, quote unquote, assimilate Native children into Euro, I hate that, Euro-American culture. It's like a nice word to say, like, we want you to be white. So fucked up. Right. There's an actual term. I didn't know that. So back to the school. So because of the Civilization Act, this opened up government money and... They basically were looking around and they came across this guy who was retiring from the army. And that, like I mentioned earlier, that was General Pratt. And he was given kind of to oversee the school and the recruiting process. And he and his wife would actually teach there. And like, who is Pratt? Well, he is not the Chris that we love so much. He actually retired as a brigadier general. So it would be Brigadier General Richard Henry Pat, and he was an American general who was best known as the founder and longtime superintendent of the influential Carlisle Indian Industrial School at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He was associated with the first record of using the word racism, which was used in 1902 to criticize racial segregation. Pratt is also known for the phrase kill the Indian and save the man in reference to the ethos of the Carlisle Indian Institution School and its efforts to educate Native Americans. I feel like when I read about him, he started out as this person who was very much like that phrase that he's famous for saying, like, I got this. Let's like literally remove this part of their culture. And I think towards the end of his life, he kind of changed a bit because he did actually go on to advocate for Native American rights. So he's one of those who had like a glow up moment. I don't think he was that great. I don't think he was like the most amazing person, but I think through this horrible tragedy. Some change. Yeah. Because during this period, many white Americans believe that the only hope for Native Americans, because their quote unquote population was declining, that they needed to assimilate into white culture or therefore they would be wiped out. I don't know what that really means because I feel like the reason that they were declining is because we gave them diseases and killed them and pushed them out of their homes. So it's like, I don't think people really looked back then at cause and effect. Mm -hmm. They were the type of people, like if the wagon rolled down the hill, they would be like, well, what could have caused that? It's like not me leaning on it without a break. Right. Anyway, so back to 1879. Pratt founded the school and began recruiting. On day one, he had 82 boys and girls arrive. They arrived via train, and they'd been on the train for days. So, I don't know what else comes to mind when you think of people arriving by train. I'm just going to leave that there. But kind of the same thing, like, they were put into, from what I was gathering when I was watching documentaries and reading, it wasn't like they were in, like, a town car and had nice sleeping arrangements, It didn't really seem like that. And they arrived at midnight and they were immediately put into the old barracks that was at the fort that was there. 
So, like, not the greatest living conditions. On November 1st, 1879, 148 students were enrolled. The youngest was six and the eldest was 25. Most of them were teenage age. Two-thirds of them were Native American tribes from the Plains. They'd done a really good job in recruiting because, like, 147 is a lot, especially because kids were coming as far as, like, Arizona. Oh, wow. That's pretty far. Yeah. Right. Because, like, that kind of area, like, the Navajo were there, that area. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but that's what I wrote down <laughs> when I was watching the documentary. And I'll talk about a story about that in a second. But on the first day, there was 84 Lakota natives, 52 Cheyenne, Kiowa, and Pawnee natives, which I saw Pawnee and was like, <gasps> Pawnee, Indiana. Parks and Rec. <laughs> yeah. And then 11 Apache. Because of this school, 26 more, or I should say 26 total were created. Children were taken from their homes or persuaded to leave, and their parents would have to sign a contract, and the children were not allowed to return home until they were at least 18 years old. The conditions that the children lived in were horrible. I don't think they put a lot of thought into it. Like, when I think of going to boarding school, I think of, like, dormitory style. Right. Yeah, and I think of the upper class, wealthy schools that, you know, you wear uniforms to. <laughs> I don't think that's what this was. One of the things that they were told they were not allowed to do is they were not allowed to speak their native tongue. So they were forced to speak English. In fact, so if you're taking a child as young as six, who probably that's the only language they know, they were quickly made to learn English. And then they started to strip them of all their own cultural identities, such as boys had to cut their hair short. Girls had to cut their, sh like, because, like, they would cut them whatever the style was. The girls would have to get their hair cut to that. The clothes, if they came in in their traditional clothes, they were removed and made to wear whatever was the modern fashion. So for whatever that was at the time. And I think with the hair in indigenous culture in America, hair represented a lot of different things. And two of the big elements is it's like their wisdom and strength. I don't think they were supposed to cut their hair. And so to like basically cut it to like a flat top, really short hair is not good. No. So basically it wasn't about like when I think of assimilation, I think of like how Christmas is in December because... Christians didn't want to exclude others, so they changed the holidays so that anyone outside of their culture would assimilate easier into there. This was not assimilation. This was total ethnic cleansing. This was, come to us, we will completely strip you of who you are and create someone completely different. And this would also be coupled with telling children that if they took part in their native culture, it would end up sending them to hell. Oh my god. Yeah. Pratt was very successful with this because... Actually, a lot of chiefs were like, okay, you know, my people are suffering. It's cold. We don't have a lot of resources. I could send my children to the school and they would get fed. They would be warm. They would grow. The chances of their survival would be greater. So he was like, oh, okay. The school kept growing, which is how it ended up being like 26 schools around the United States. And I think one of the interesting things is that they wouldn't necessarily like, let's say you live down the street or, you know, a couple hundred miles from the school. They wouldn't send your kid to that one. They would send your kid to the one that was like so far away because they wanted to sever that family tie. Mm, got you. 
And because of the success, a lot of individuals who were in education went to like volunteer and like be there professionally so that they could grow. And I mean, they did several things. I mean, there was a college involved with that school. The curriculum that was taught there was English, math, history, drawing, composition. Students learned trade work or trade skills or like work skills such as farming, manufacturing. Other students, this might sound familiar, were used to help build new classrooms and dormitories, which is, you know, we go back to that whole like free labor thing, but Mm -hmm. they were doing it under like, we're going to teach you how to build a building so you can go out and build buildings. And so they were giving them kind of this industrial know-how because that was like the point of it for Pratt was that he wanted to be able to educate them so that they could go out and then become members of just like the general population and get jobs and uh, quote unquote assimilate into the Euro-American culture. Like I said, students were also instructed in Christianity and had to attend local church. They could go to whichever church that like if there was like a Baptist church or Catholic, they could go to whatever church they wanted to. They just had to go to a Christian church and they were not allowed to practice their own native spirituality, which makes me sad. Right. Before we go into something a little sadder. I just wanted to share this fact. In the early 20th century, the Carlisle Indian School was the nation's or the national football powerhouse and regularly competed against other major programs such as Ivy League schools as Harvard, I think like Penn State, Cornell, Dartmouth, Yale, Princeton, Brown, and the Army, and then the Navy. By 1907, the school had the most dynamic college football team in America. Wow. That's Really impressive. In fact, they pioneered the forward pass, the overhand spiral, and other tricks that we see today that I did not know came from the school, which I think is flipping amazing. In fact, the Carlisle School has been characterized as the team that invented football or like the modern version of football. So you're probably like, could it really be that bad? The answer is yes, because Not only are you taking children who are at an age where they're forming their ideological views of life and stripping them from everything that their culture has taught them up to that point, and then also like, you know, separating them from their families, but there was also an abuse aspect of it. There was a sexual abuse component to it. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail because that was really sad, but there was obviously some non-consent sexual abuse happening and maybe even some consent abuse happening, which I was reading like, you know, bad things. It was also very mentally abusive. I mean, think about being told that everything that you are up to this point is no longer valid and you have to change. I'm sure there's a lot of people in America who can really relate to that. And physically, the physical abuse, they would be whipped. They would be like handcuffed when they were looking at, they were looking in this room That was at the school, and it was like this little room that kind of looked like a jail. They found tiny little handcuffs, like a child size, like little bug size. Oh, my God. Ugh. Yeah, I was like, what? No, thank you. And one of the ways they would punish kids is they would make them stand on their knees for hours and, like, hold things, and they couldn't drop them, and they couldn't stand up, and they couldn't sit down, like, they couldn't lean back. But they were on their knees. And I just think of like kneeling for more than like five minutes and like how bad my knees hurt. And I think of like ladies who garden who get those little like swing to be in. Like these are kids on hard ground and their knees were never going to recover from that. 
they used to beat them in class. So one of the things I watched was a native child would like speak their own language that they were taught. And the teacher would bring them up in front of class and just like beat them to beat it out of them. Another thing that was bad, which was, I think, an indirect bad thing, it wasn't a thing that they were like, let's do this, is that diseases that these children were not exposed to, they were suddenly being exposed to, like smallpox and things like that. And so a lot of children ended up dying when they would go to these schools. And then because they died of an infectious disease, their bodies couldn't be sent back to their reservations. Also, I don't know how transport worked, but it took days. So I don't know how that would be for the the actual body of the child. But a lot of the children are in unmarked graves at these schools. And because of this horrible treatment, there were a lot of runaways that would often end up just disappearing. Like the families would never hear from them again. And then the schools would never, I don't want to say capture, but like find them and bring them back. So capture. Some of them would go out. There was a story and this is like these like three boys ran away. They were gone for a couple of days. And when they brought them back, they had actually like lost their feet due to frostbite. Mm. And you would think that this was like in the 1800s, but this was like in the 1970s. Oh, my God. Because this still would happen. Kids would become ill. So when I watched this documentary, they interviewed a lot of indigenous people who attended these schools. And some of them, like the stories are horrific. They talk about the abuse. They talk about having to stand on their knees or stand outside with their arms straight out holding things for hours a day or being like locked in rooms, being beaten. And then some of them are like, I had a really great time at school. I learned a lot. My teachers were great. I just like culturally missed out on a lot because I assimilated. And I think because when they went to school, there was more regulations put in place and there was more ways for people to be like, hey, mom, um, did you know that this happens? And of course, this did work in breaking down the Native American culture because there's whole generations of indigenous people who don't speak the language. Like this one guy brought me to tears because he was talking about how he doesn't speak the language and how it made him feel. Because the only way that I can see, like when I was looking at him, he didn't directly say this, but it was like almost like him saying, like, I'm not enough. Like, there's part of me that's missing. And I wanted to be like, no, dude, you are whole. Don't let people rob you of who you are. And there's still time. Find someone. Someone's got to know. Someone will teach you. So, yeah, with the language barrier. And then I think like this also severed the whole family, a lot of the family ties. But there was one good thing that came from this is because of these schools, a lot of intertribe relations were formed. So whereas there may have been some combativeness, it taught them how to work things out in a like use your words type situation is what I kind of gathered. And this is where I started noticing that a lot of the people being interviewed were like, oh, I belong to this tribe, but I met a boy at my school and he's from this tribe and now we're married and our kids like have two tribal backgrounds, which is great because that's such a rich culture. Mm -hmm. Now, I got like when I was doing this research, learning all these things about all the bad things that were happening, like one of the stories is to do with the Navajo tribe. And basically in 1868, there was a Navajo treaty. There was a provision that put it in there that it was mandatory that children of that tribe attend school. And it wasn't like you get to set up a school and your kids go to it. It's we'll tell them where they can go to school. 
And the chief of this tribe sent his kid to Carlisle and his kid ended up dying. Like he sent like, I think two kids and both of his sons died. One died at the school and then he demanded that his other son be returned to him and his son died shortly after he returned because he was so ill. Because he probably left Carlisle asymptomatic or, you know, not showing symptoms and then on the train ride got sick. Now, there are some schools that people say have done some really great one. There's one in Utah, like the Utah-Idaho area. It's the Intermountain Indian School. And the students that they interviewed who went to that school said it was great that it wasn't anti-Native culture, that it kind of embraced it. But there is a school out there. And I, when I found this, it made my heart happy. And it is the Santa Fe Indian School in New Mexico. And I'm just going to read this blurb. The Santa Fe Indian School, or SFIS, was established in 1890 to educate the Native American children from the tribes throughout the Southwest. It is actually a Native-run school. Basically, what was happening in 2000, the school was going to be closed down for various reasons, and there was the Santa Fe Indian School Act, and the land was turned over to be held in a trust for the 19 Pueblo governors of New Mexico. And this allowed SFIS to build a program based on educational sovereignty, the right and responsibility to educate New Mexico Native children in a manner to support their culture and traditional beliefs. So basically, it's an immersive school where you could, like, if you were Native, you could send your kid and they would be taught about their actual Native background. Oh, that's good. Yeah, in the documentary I watched, there was a girl. She was actually originally from Alaska. Ooh. Right? So she's like, her family has, um, I don't remember the tribe that is in Alaska, but then she also has family in like the Southwest region. And so she goes to school there and she stays there Monday through Friday. And then on the weekend, she catches the bus home because it's kind of out there a little ways. So they actually provide transit. Like I have their website up and it's really cool. It was closed every time I went to look at it because of COVID. But (laughs) I mean, it looks like a really cool boarding school that really kind of immerses students into learning about their culture to be able to take pride in it. So I think that out of kind of a bad situation, they were like, wait a second, if you're going to just like get rid of the school, why not let us try? Like you've tried and not done well. Let us try and do well. And the students there... They're receiving the same education that other students receive at other schools. They're just, it's kind of like going to a specialized school. Like when I was in high school, I was in a program, an exchange program. And this high school that my exchange student went to was a musical high school. So anything that they had to have some sort of like musical element to it, they took instruments and voice and all these different things, but they learned traditional schooling as well. So I thought like, wow, this is really great that they kind of flipped the script on this instead of it being something that could be a horrible spot in our history. If more of these schools could be turned over and taught to give indigenous students the right to learn in a safe place, but also learn about their culture would be fantastic. And I'm all for that. And I want to know how to how do we make that happen? I don't know how to do that. But someone does and someone just needs to tell me and I will point my voice in that direction. So my final thoughts is this. It was kind of a tough subject to approach because it's a deep subject. And I did do very much a surface deep cursory research because my heart broke every time I went deeper into it. However, 
we just have to realize that anytime that we can move forward in these type of instances and do better, we have to. And, you know, Tara and I have always said that this podcast is very inclusive and it's very, it's here for everyone. And we do know that we have some indigenous listeners and we love you and we want you to be safe. Mm -hmm. I know I didn't go into such a deep on it, like into it, but I hope at least enough. I went into it enough to we can understand that this is not a good system and that if schools are still being run this way, they people need to go out and look into this and shut them down. And students should have a safe place to learn regardless of their cultural background. And they shouldn't have to feel less than and be made to feel that they have to change who they are. So that's how I feel. Again, Tara and I want to say thank you to Mindy for being a patron and thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you for our listeners for allowing us to have this platform that we can talk about these subjects that sometimes aren't the most comfortable to talk about, but should be talked about. And And that's why I wanted to end it with the school that I ended up talking about it because I want there, I want people to know that there is, there are, I want people to know that there are like lights at the end of the tunnel. There can be change and there can be great things that happen in America. It might not seem like that right now, but there's definitely a thousand percent the possibility. Mm -hmm, For sure. So that's going to wrap it up for me. And we will see you back here on Monday for another episode. And we will talk at you then. Bye. Bye.